Well, she mentioned if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that right now. First John chapter two, we'll continue our teaching series where we're gonna work through all three of John's letters in the New Testament. Uh, as we go there, I'll just ask you to forgive me tonight. Er- earlier this week, I was sick. And you know when like you're not sick, but you've got that like weird throat where it sounds like you've been smoking two packs a day forever? That- that's where I'm at right now. And so my, my-, my deepest apologies uh, if I sound kind of off. The other reason, I-, I was spending some time outside today doing various projects around here. Anyone else just kind of like overwhelmed by the smoke and just like, seeing that, but not being really clear if it was smoke from a fire, what we've learned is this is smoke coming in from a fire way up in Northern California that's just kind of caught in the wind and has come around here. And so you see that and you start to recognize something immediately, you start to recognize that like it's kind of all around you. You're not sure where it's coming from. And maybe this brings back memories even of 2018 when the fires got a little more close to home. And it was kind of like everywhere around you. Do you remember that? It smelled like smoke. You saw smoke, you thought about smoke. I remember actually that one night we were in this worship center and like our hazer wasn't on, but there was smoke everywhere, right? And so it's just kind of this environment. And I was thinking about that today as I go to the text that we're gonna look at tonight. Because when the smoke really comes in and starts to settle in, it smells like smoke, it looks like smoke, it even tastes like smoke, like everything just kind of permeates it. And here's what I think John is trying to get us to think about. In the passage we're gonna look at tonight, What John wants us to understand is just like smoke can just kind of invade everything and you see it and you taste it and you smell it and you can't get away from it. John wants you and me who are followers of Jesus to understand that all of us occupy a world that is defined by certain things. And there is no way for us to operate and move and walk through our journey with Jesus in this world without being aware of how ever present the things of this world are. Today, I want to talk to you about the world, that the world is like a smoke that's all around us. We can't do anything without seeing it and tasting it and touching it and smelling it. And if you don't know what I mean when I refer to the world tonight, I hope to open that up to you in the scriptures. Uh, Again, we're going to begin in 1 John chapter 2. So here's what it says in verse 12. It says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14 says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So you'll see here in 1 John 2, verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, I think this is written toward young men, but I think it includes young women as well. I think if you ask John, like what you're writing here, does this include women as well? He'd go, absolutely. He's talking to young people. He's talking to us who are here in this room. He's talking to individuals who are trying to follow Jesus and you're young and you're trying to establish your life. And at the same time, there's all these pressures coming in on you from college and from work and from family. He's saying, young people, he wants to remind you of something. You are strong. You are strong. Now now listen, um, this is just never gonna be the church where I get up here and I just go like, you're wonderful and you're wonderful and you go girl and you're amazing. You got it inside of yourself. Like this has just never been my thing, right? And here's why. Because it says you're strong and here's what it's gonna insist on. It says you're strong not because you're awesome, not because you've got it all together, but because the word of God lives inside of you. Like this living and active, powerful word of God lives inside of you. 
Uh, like in other words, the reason you should know that you're strong, the reason you can have courage going into this world, it's because the word of God lives inside of you. And then it says this, you have overcome the evil one. Uh, like in other words, John wants us to be aware that if we're gonna operate as young men and women in this world, with all of the pressures that this world has on us, we're gonna need to be strong. We're gonna need to know that God's word, his authority, his spoken authority lives inside of us. And we're gonna have to know that we have overcome the evil one. This is the encouragement, the sort of gospel encouragement he wants to set us up with here. Uh, again, if you go back two weeks when we started this series, here's what I said. The book of 1 John is to answer the question, how do we live in light of the truth of the gospel? In light of the truth that on the cross, Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead, so that when we trust and believe in him, he resides in us and gives us eternal life. Now, how do we live in response to that? And here's what John is going to do. He's going to give this pep talk to young people and say, listen, you are strong and you're strong, not because you're awesome. You're strong because the word of God lives in you. And because of the word of God, the authority of God over your life, you have overcome the evil one. There's this burden throughout the book of 1 John and the burden runs through the entire New Testament. And the burden is that there are actual enemies and oppositions to your heart and your soul and your faith. Uh, Let me put it this way. If you've ever felt like it's difficult to be a Christian, if you've ever felt like it's actually hard to follow after Jesus, if it's ever felt like it's a struggle and a battle just to get yourself to walk with the Lord and be with Jesus and do what he commanded you to do, there's a reason for that. It's because it is a struggle. It is a war. It is a battle. And God help any of us who are naive enough to think there isn't an enemy who's trying to destroy us. There is. There are these enemies that come up against us over and over and over again. And in the New Testament, there's three enemies. There are three enemies of your soul, three enemies of your heart, three enemies of your faith. And those three enemies are typically described as the world that we're gonna talk about tonight, the flesh, which means what's inside of you, like the things inside of you that destroy you, and the devil, the world and the flesh and the devil. And here's what John wants you to understand that because of the gospel, you don't have to be afraid of any of those three. Because of the gospel, you can be the type of Christian that says, I'm gonna walk forward and move forward in this world. And I know there's gonna be opposition to my faith. And yet I'm not afraid of that opposition because I know the one who is in me is greater than anything or anyone that is in the world. It goes on this way to talk about the world in verse 15. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now tonight, a few times I've referenced this world here, the world. And here's what I want you to know. The world is a very important phrase. It's a very important word found throughout the New Testament. It is critical if you're gonna read the New Testament and understand what God has to say to you, that you know what this word world means. Let let me break there on the the word for you. Word and world, that gets hard. Okay, I'm just gonna be honest here. But here we go. The, The Greek word, I show this to you from time to time, is cosmos. It's where we get the word cosmos from. Yeah, you go to seminary to learn things like that. But this is it. The Greek word cosmos, it's pronounced cosmos. It means the world. And in the New Testament, there are three meanings to this word cosmos, world. Three meanings. Now that might frustrate you. Like, why are there three meanings to this one word? And the only reason that frustrates you is if you didn't have to learn English as a second language. Because if you think about it for just a moment, There are all kinds of vocabulary words in English that mean three different things. Like, like, let me give you the word swing for an example, okay? Three different meanings to the word swing. 
It could mean the playground equipment that my daughter wants to go on every time we go to the playground where I push her on the swing, right? It could mean the action you do with a baseball bat when you're trying to hit a ball, right? Or it could be an idiom where I say, are you able to swing that for me? Oh, I can swing that for you. So here's one word, three meanings. Same things with the word world in the New Testament, this word cosmos in the Greek. Three meanings, let me show them to you. Here's the first meaning. The first meaning just means the universe. You'll see this in Romans chapter one. It says, for since the creation of the world, the cosmos, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Obviously here in the context, this word world means the entire created order, the entire planet that God has created, the entire universe and all of the stars and all of the planets. That's the first meaning of the word world. Here's the second meaning. The second meaning is all of humanity. Maybe the most famous Bible verse, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In this sense, the world isn't referring to all of created order, but to specifically every human being, men and women who have been created and loved by God. And then here's the third meaning we're gonna look at tonight. Meaning number three is the cultural systems, practices, and ideas. If John 15, Jesus says this, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And this is the meaning we're going to look at tonight. So you see, oftentimes what we call the culture, the Bible calls the world. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. What would these cultural influences, these patterns, these practices, these systems that are all around us, the things that operate in our world, the things that operate in our culture without us being aware of, it's like the smoke you drove through or walked through today. It's there, you can smell it, you can taste it, and there's almost nothing you can do to get away from it. Pastor John Mark Comer puts it this way. I think he defines the world well. He says this, the world is a system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized into a culture that is organized around rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. And I think this is such a helpful definition for us to think about what the world is. The world is the culture all around us and the world is a culture that morphs and shapes and changes throughout the centuries. But it's always built around these ideals and values and practices and norms that are just kind of crushed in upon you that are organized against two things, rebellion against God, like in other words, we've got this God, we don't need you, and a redefinition of what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And the culture and the world and all these systems change. And yet what remains the same is setting itself up against God. When the New Testament talks about the world in this kind of way, it's talking about this. And here's what I'm convinced of. The followers of Jesus should make note of the patterns and the practices of the world. This is important. If you are going to follow Jesus, if you're going to have a fruitful walk with Christ, if you're gonna flourish in this world, you need to notice the patterns and the practices of this world so that you don't accidentally conform to them. And here's what happens constantly. What happens is Christians live in the world and get so intoxicated by the fumes of the world they breathe in, they don't even realize that they're conforming to the pattern of the world rather than the pattern of who God is. And so here's what it's gotta start with. It has to start with you and me becoming a student of our culture and becoming a student of things, whether it's good, bad, right, or wrong, just noticing what's true of our culture. It's a little bit like if you've ever traveled internationally, 
whether on a mission trip or, or just on a vacation, and you just notice things that aren't like back home. Like when I would take students to Uganda, we would always immediately notice that they don't drive on the right side of the road, they drive on the left side of the road. And it just throws you off and you notice it every time because it's so different than your experience. I remember one time my wife and I went to Paris and it was about like five o'clock in the afternoon and we were just really hungry and it was just kind of long day. So we decided to go sit down for dinner and we sat down for dinner and asked for a dinner menu and they looked like we had just insulted them deeply. Because dinner for Paris people doesn't start till like 9 p.m. But that wasn't something we knew, but it was something we noticed because it was something different. And so when we go to a different culture, when we go to a different setting, we immediately notice how they do things differently. And you, child of God, you do not belong to this world. You don't. This world is not your home. And again, when I say world, I don't mean it in the first sense of the entire created order. Of course you belong in this world. And of course you belong in the world when it refers to all of humanity. But when it comes to these patterns and practices and systems that set themselves up against God, child of God, you live in this world, but you are not of it. And your job is to observe this world and say, what do the systems and values and practices and social norms of this world have to say? Let me give you a few examples. I could give hundreds of examples and you could too. But let's just notice some, let's notice some of the ideas of the world. You ever notice the world says stuff like this, abstinence before marriage is impossible and unnecessary? That's just like a belief that's out there. Next one, if you become rich, you'll be happy. That's just sort of the unstated idea of the world. The reason you're unhappy is because you don't have enough money, but if you had more money, you would definitely be happy. Next, having children takes the fun out of life. I don't know if you're at this phase in life, but I'm a married man with three kids and people look at me like, oh, your life must be terrible, right? But this is the ideas of the world. And again, I bet you you could list hundreds of them when it comes to marriage and sex and family and money and education and how you operate with friends and roommates. There's these ideas that just seem so normal. But you don't find them in the scriptures. They're just these random ideas that have come together in this culture. I want you to notice the values of this world, okay? I'll give you a few. You notice one of the values of our world today is you're not supposed to judge anyone for anything ever unless they're a judgmental person and then you're allowed to judge them. That's it. You are defined by what you do. Like you ever notice how easily you slip into this? Like you meet someone, you're like, hi, great to meet you. What do you do? Where do you go to school? It's the most important thing about them. And then the next value I see all the time is that being uncomfortable is something to be avoided at all times. This just seems like a value in our culture. You should never have an uncomfortable, awkward moment ever. You should just avoid them at all costs. And again, your job, child of God, is to notice the patterns and the practices and the values of this world. Like, let me show you some of the practices of this world. You can make a list hundreds deep, but let me give you three. One, people should work for five days and rest for two each week. Do you know that most of human history, no one bought into this idea? This is like a super modern idea that we've just come up with at like five days and two days you do nothing but watch football and barbecue and sleep in. Like that's what you do. And here's what I want you to know. That's a practice of our world, but it doesn't mean it's how we operate. The next thing I think of is like buying things you cannot afford with debt is normal and smart, right? Like all throughout our culture, the practice of our world today is be deeply in debt up to your eyeballs to try to impress people with money that you don't actually have. Like this is a pattern and a practice of our world. Final one I'll show you is that everyone needs to go to college if they want to succeed. If you don't go to college, you'll never make it in life. You don't go to college. College is just like this propaganda that's been put out over us. And listen, I'm not anti-college. 
I went to college, I went to grad school. I just want you to notice that in our culture, we've come up with the idea that you must go to college or there's nothing valuable about your life. Notice it, see it, call it out for what it is. Say, this is what our culture teaches and you can assess it. See, when you see what our culture is teaching, when you see the values and the practices and the patterns, when you see the belief systems of our culture, I think there's three different responses you can have toward it. Three different responses you can have toward the world, the patterns, the practices, and the belief systems. Let me show you this. Three ways to engage with the values and practices of the world. Number one, you can receive it. Number two, you can reject it. And number three, you can redeem it. So any of those statements I just put out to you, any of these ideas that kind of float around in the world, any of the things you see on your college campus or in your workplace or in your family, you can receive it with joy, you can reject it as sin, or you can redeem it for God's glory. Uh, like, let me give you um, just a few examples of how this plays out real practically, because I think you're going to deal with these questions every single day. You are gonna deal with the question, what do I do with the world around me, with the culture around me? And the answer is, you can receive it, you can reject it, or you can redeem it. Let me show it to you in the context of this, of books, movies, TV shows, and music. Books, music, TV shows, and music. All right, media. So what can you do? If there's a really good song, a really good book, a really good idea, a really good movie that is wholesome and honoring and good, even if it's not written by a Christian artist or a Christian author, you can receive it as good. You can read epic novels and wonderful books and watch incredible films and see it and say, you know what, this isn't explicitly Christian and yet it is good. It is speaking something that is true and right and beautiful and you can receive it. What's the next thing you can do? You can reject it. You've heard me say this before. I hope as a follower of Jesus, there are certain things you just go, I can't watch that TV show. It's just not honoring to my savior. I won't listen to music like this because the way it talks about other people is not honoring for the people Christ died for. Like again, I'm never gonna get up here and tell you what the line is. My fear, and I've told you this before, is that some of you don't have a line at all. There's just no line. There's never a moment where you go, you know what, I can't do that. Not because I don't like it, I like it. I just know it's not gonna lead me to faith and flourishing like Jesus wants for me. And there must be things, there must be things that we reject when it comes to popular culture. And then there may be things we redeem. There may be things out there, ideas out there, movies or songs out there that are written and it taps into something deep, even though it's not a Christian artist, but it tells us something deep and true and profound and beautiful about the world. And as Christians, we say, you know what? This piece of secular art is actually pointing to the deep longing we have for our God. Again, when it comes to TVs and books and movies and music and all the different things we consume, you can receive it, you can reject it, you can redeem it. Let me give you a different uh, example. When it comes to language and words, just like the words we use, the way we talk in this culture, there's gonna be some stuff you just receive, okay? The fact that you speak English is like a morally neutral thing, okay? You speak English, you know those words, you use common vocabulary and idioms and ideas in the English language, you're just gonna receive that. You don't have to be like, okay, I don't wanna be like the world, so I'll just speak nothing. You know, like that doesn't work. I'm gonna receive the English language but I'm gonna reject some things. I'm gonna reject how our culture talks, how our culture talks in mean and rude and condescending and harsh and ungentle ways. I'm gonna reject the sort of racist, sexist, bigoted, angry discourse that goes on in our world today. I'm going to choose as a follower of Jesus to reject this sort of dunk on you mentality when the whole goal in conversation is not to learn and grow together, but rather to prove how stupid you are. I'm going to reject 
that. And then we want to redeem things. We want to redeem if there are words and ideas and culture that seem to be kind of getting off track to say, no, 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 that desire you have is actually a desire for God himself. I'll give you one last example, and that's technology, science, and modern medicine. Child of God, you know what you can do because of God's common grace in this world? You can receive medicine. You can receive technology. You can receive helpful things, even if they're not explicitly Christian. That includes antibiotics. It includes surgery. It includes vaccines. It includes the ability to just say, listen, this is a good, right thing. Again, I've never claimed anything science does, go for it. We'll get to that in a second. I'm just saying you can receive that with joy and it's not an indication of your lack of faith. Like if you have a headache and you take an Excedrin, it's not because you don't trust God. If you have a stomachache and you take Tums, it's not because you don't trust God. You can receive those things with joy. You can receive modern medicine. You can receive the good things of technology. Like right now, in this moment, we are streaming on three different platforms online. We are using, we are receiving this modern technology so that the gospel can go out. We can receive that which is from technology and science and modern medicine. But then there's going to be certain things we reject. Like as Christians, there's just going to be certain things we say, no, that's a line for us. If your medicine or if your surgery or if your technology ends up harming people or harming human beings or leading to suffering, we're not for it. We're not for it if it harms people in old age. We're not for it if it harms people in the womb. We're not for it if it harms people in any way. We're going to reject anything that sets itself up against God, even if it's in the name of technology, science, and modern medicine. And then we're going to redeem it. We're going to redeem anything that shows that people want goodness and flourishing in life. Or we're going to show that that actually points to God. What's my point? Every single day, you're going to encounter things that are not explicitly Christian. And child of God, I do not want you to live under the burden that if it's not produced by a Christian publishing house, or if it's not like a churchy thing, you have to reject it. You have a filter now. You receive it, you reject it, or you redeem it. That's how we interact with the things of this world. Again, these things of this world are constantly coming at us. And the burden of this text isn't that we somehow try to live in such a way where there's nothing the world has that we ever receive, but rather we receive, we reject, and redeem in an effort to do what verse 15 says, next verse, that we would not love the world. It says this, that if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. This is the burden of 1 John in this passage. The burden of 1 John is that if you love the world, again, not the world like the created order, like you should love nature, you should love looking up at the stars, you should love looking out over a mountaintop, you should love that. Again, the second meaning, you should love the people of this world, right? You're called to love the people of this world and care for the people of this world. But you should hate and reject the value systems, the practices, the patterns of this world. The burden here is that if you have love for the world, your love for the Father, love for God is not in you. Like, let me put it this way to you tonight. If you are still in love with the world, you cannot love God. If you are still in love with the world, you cannot love God. Why do I say still? Because all of us are born in love with the world. None of us are born, born again, right? We're all born not Christians, and then we come to a saving faith in Jesus. But when we decide to follow after Jesus, it's because we've decided to lay down and sacrifice everything else so that we can pursue after Christ. That's what happens. We don't still love the world. We love God instead. And yet what can happen for so many of us is we want to follow after Jesus. We just kind of want to look cool like the rest of the world. And you know what that comes off like? 
Like, ladies, let me just, like, um, pick on you for a second. I want you to imagine uh, that you start dating a guy, and everything's going really well, and it's awesome, and everything's wonderful. He gets down on one knee. He pops the question, will you marry me? And you say yes, and you're so excited, and you're planning the wedding, and you're in premarital counseling in my office, and we're talking about what marriage looks like, and we're talking about what it looks like to be husband and wife. And I want you to imagine there comes a moment where this guy that you are madly, wildly in love with says, I am so excited to marry you, but I do need to let you know one thing. Back when I was in high school, I had this one girlfriend. And I gotta tell you, she was incredible. She is incredible. And she didn't want anything to do with me, but I gotta tell you, I wanna marry you, but I need to keep my options open with her. Now, no girl here is like, you know what? I think this marriage is gonna work out, right? No one's thinking that. No one looks at that. They're like, yeah, I think this will still work out. Yes, he's keeping his options open for like the ex, but I think he really does love me. No, if you're any girl of any worth and self-value, you would say, no, you leave her behind if you want me. You cut off every single other option if you wanna pursue me. And that is exactly what Jesus says to you. Like, listen, if you want to follow after Jesus, it means laying down everything else. You've got to leave some things behind. You can't say, I want to cling on to the things of this world and the way the world operates and follow Jesus. No, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to go with the words of Jesus himself, who says this in Matthew 16. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What good will it be if someone gains the whole world, the whole cosmos, yet forfeits their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You know what Jesus understands? If you're gonna follow after him, you gotta leave the world behind. You gotta leave behind the opinions of your parents and how they think you should live. If you're gonna follow after Jesus, you have to leave behind the, 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 the pressure from this culture about how you're supposed to be educated and how you're supposed to do your career. If you wanna follow after Jesus, you have to leave behind the systems, the ideas, the values, the patterns of this world and say, I forsake all of those things for the sake of Christ. See, listen, no one would ever think about getting into the type of marriage I described in that scenario. And yet the heartbreaking thing for so many Christians is you've decided to follow Jesus in the exact same way. You're leaving your options open, hedging your bets. But faith in Jesus Christ means us being all in on Jesus, even if it costs us everything, because we learn that it costs us everything and we still get something better in return. That's what following Jesus looks like. It goes on this way in verse 16. It says, for everything in the world, and it's gonna come to describe what the world is like. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. As we close tonight, it's these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that I wanna to talk to you about. See, I said that the three great enemies of your soul were the world, the flesh, and the devil. And tonight we're talking about the world, the cosmos, the systems and patterns and practices of this world. And those systems and patterns and practices of this world load up three temptations that they will send you over and over and over again. It's like a pitcher on a baseball team that's only got three pitches. And yet those are incredibly effective pitches that he throws over and over and over again. And the three pitches that the world has for you, 
the three temptations that have been coming at human beings since the very beginning are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, I wanna talk to you about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And the danger is that you would say, okay, my job is to avoid doing those three sins. And I would agree with you that there's some call in your life to reject those sins and instead to walk into what Jesus has for you. But the danger is that you would just see those as like three sins on a list of things you're supposed to avoid. Rather than understanding the grip that these things already have on your life, and that what the New Testament isn't going to teach is like there's a whole list of sins you're just supposed to try to avoid. Rather, what the New Testament wants us to understand is that when we fall in love with the world rather than with God, it's not that just we do bad things. Listen to me. It's that we're bound to those bad things. It's that we're inextricably tied up with those bad things. Let me put it to you this way. That love for the world leads to slavery. This is the metaphor the New Testament uses, and it makes us bristle for right reasons. Slavery has all sorts of emotional and just, just deep kind of things in our heart and our soul when we think about our world and our nation and what it looks like. And this is what the New Testament is trying to get us to see, that slavery is this thing that binds us. It's not just a decision we make. It's something that controls us and owns us. And I want you to see that tonight. Like, I think the New Testament has this understanding that what we need to do is understand that the power of sin in this world isn't that I just do bad things. It's that if I fall in love with the world, I will be owned by those bad things. Well, look, let me put it to you this way. The first one is this, the lust of the flesh. Here's what the lust of the flesh is. It is enslavement to comfort and impulsive pleasure. And here's what I know. Every single one of you knows someone whose life is dominated by comfort or impulsive pleasure. Like you know someone whose whole life is about comfort. So they never do anything hard or anything difficult. They've never pushed themselves. They've never gone anywhere. Their body just wants to rest and be a lazy, gluttonous individual. And they've just given into that. And here's what the systems of the world say. It's your life. It's your choice. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. If you want to rest and do nothing and just kind of give into everything, then do that because you deserve it. You've earned it. You deserve everything you want. It's comfort. The world just wants to convince you to just sit back and live in a life of luxury and ease where you never do anything meaningful. Or it wants you to give in to impulsive pleasure. And again, I don't even think they have to go long. Like every single person has someone in their family, an uncle, a sister, a brother, an aunt, or one of their best friends or former best friends who just started walking down the road of impulsive pleasure. And we love to just bang on about our freedom and have we have the right to do anything we want. And so I'm gonna drink that bottle. I'm gonna use that drug. And then here's what happens all the time. What happens all the time is the thing I think I'm free to do ends up mastering me. You've seen it. I've seen it. And here's what happens when we give in to compulsive, impulsive pleasure and comfort and our whole life is around what we think we deserve, what we want, what our bodies feel we end up enslaved to it. And we say things like, well, this will be the last time I ever look at porn. I deserve to get pretty drunk tonight. It's been a hard week. You, you see us justifying these things. You see us saying these things out loud because what we've done is we've actually run back to comfort and impulsive pleasure. And because we're so enslaved to them, because it has power over us, we start justifying why it's good for us in the long run. And it's destroying us. 
And you know that, and I know that. And here's what I want you to know tonight, that freedom from the lust of the flesh comes through exposing the lies we believed. I want you to know that the lust of the flesh operates on lies. It operates on lies like, well, what I'm doing isn't hurting anyone, so why is it a big deal? It operates on lies like, well, I deserve this, so who's to tell me I shouldn't do this? It operates on lies like, well, it's not a big deal. It's just my body. Why do bodies really matter anyway? It operates on this whole cloud of lies. And if you want to find yourself free from the lust of the flesh, you've got to identify the lies for what they are. You've got to identify the lie that when you are looking at pornography, and believe me, I know the addiction and the pain that so many of you have walked through, but please stop using the line that it's not hurting anyone. Like aside from the fact that it's hurting you, are you aware that pornography is a justice issue? It is, a tra- it is an industry that traffics women, that abuses and destroys lives. And we go off as if it's not hurting anyone. It's no big deal. It's no big thing. Or the person who's using the lie that you deserve this. And so you're going to use drugs or drink alcohol to the point where it's destroying your body. You don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. You don't want that. That owns you. It destroys you. It has consequences in your life. So again, we start living under these lies. And if we want to be free, we have to expose the lies that we're living under. The lust of the flesh operates in a shroud of lies. And I want you to be able to identify that. The next one talks about the lust of the eyes. Here's what the lust of the eyes is. Lust of the eyes is enslavement to consumption and accumulation. Listen, the lust of the eyes is enslavement to luxury. It's enslavement to wealth, to money, to stuff, to comfort. And here's the dangerous one. So in just a moment, um, I'm going to hold up a little piece of paper. And um, this little piece of paper is going to have less of the eyes, less of the flesh, pride of life. There's hundreds of them printed over at the board. When we go into worship in just a moment, I'm going to have you fill out these little pieces of paper, and you're going to have an opportunity to respond. And we'll have an opportunity to respond to which one you think you might need to repent from. Here's my guess. My guess is very few of you think you need to repent from this one. Almost no one I talk to thinks they need to repent from this one. And yet we live in the wealthiest country, the wealthiest civilization in the history of the world. And we have somehow convinced ourselves that we don't struggle with greed. Isn't that convenient? Isn't it really nice that there's always someone richer than you that you think struggles with greed? Isn't that easy just to be like, well, I don't struggle with greed. The people who struggle with greed are the people who live in that community over there. And then the people in that community over there are like, no, 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 it's not our community. It's the gated community over there. And the people in the gated community are like, no, 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 it's the people inside the inside gates of the gated community, right? There's always someone richer than you. And so there's always someone to point to and be like, they are the ones who struggle with greed and luxury and this lust of the eyes where we always want more and to have more. But listen, can you just please, please, please start with a default assumption that because you live in the richest civilization in the history of the world, you struggle with greed? Start with that assumption. Start with, this is going to be an issue for me. This is going to be a problem for me. And if you think, no way, Brian, this is just not a problem for me. Can I ask you a question? Do you ever buy a new iPhone, not because your old one's broken, but just because there's a new one? well, it has three cameras. I gotta have it, you know? You ever bought a new car, not because your old one's broken, but because there was a new one that seems shinier? I'm a homeowner. There's all sorts of moments where I like upgrade something in my home, not because it was broken, but because I wanted something nicer, something better. Like, do you own more shoes than there are days of the week? Sorry if that got personal for some of you. But I'm just asking you, like, are there things you've just bought into as normal? Like, well, of course everyone needs an iPhone every year. And of course someone needs a new car every two years. And of course I need 172 pairs of shoes. And of course I need all this. You are so susceptible and so am I 
to falling in to this enslavement, to consumption and accumulation. And here's why it's slavery. It'll never be enough. You will never reach a level of wealth, accumulation, or luxury where you just go, I'm good. And the reason I know that is because you look at all the people who have all the money you think you could have someday, and they're not happy either. It's always one more dollar, one more house, one more car, one more set of shoes, one more phone, one more thing. That's always what we want. It's an enslavement to a perpetual thing that will never actually satisfy your soul. And how do you break free from this enslavement? It's simple. Freedom from lust of the eyes comes through giving away your money and possessions. I I wanted to write generosity here, but generosity is one of those nice little weasel words that we can be like, I have a generous spirit. I'm like, okay, I love your generous spirit. Can I see your tax return on how much money you gave away last year? Because if you say you have a generous spirit, but your tax return says you've given away nothing, I'm not so certain about your generous spirit, nor am I about mine. Listen, I've stood up here over and over and over again and challenged you that you giving money to the poor, you giving money to the church for the work of gospel ministry, you giving away your money anywhere is not an issue of us or any other organization needing your money. It is an issue of your heart, your soul, your eternal destiny, what kind of person God is shaping you into. And I just wanna plead with you not to be the type of person who says all the money stays with me and I never give it away. Listen, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you currently do not give money to any church, can I give you the 52-week challenge of $1 a week for the next 52 52 years, I almost said. 52 weeks, one year, $52, $1 a week. And if you really can't afford that, drop down to $1 a month. I think you can find $1 a month of change on the floor, okay? Like you can do this. And the challenge is always so simple because of this. If you can't find it in your heart to give $1 a month to something, and again, if it's not this church, because you don't trust this church, give it to another church. Give it to another organization. But ultimately, you'll find if you cannot give away $1 a week, the problem is not with the money. The problem is somewhere in your heart. And what I want for you so desperately is to break free of this lust of the eyes that insists that all of your money is yours and should go toward your luxury, your comfort, your accumulation, and your consumption. Give away money. Give away more money next year than you did this year. Give away more money every year for the rest of your life, and you will watch the grip of money just loosen in your life. It won't own you. It won't control you anymore. When you start to give away your money, when you start to actually save up money so you can give it away, you will watch God do something miraculous in your heart. How do we break free of this slavery, this overwhelming grip of the lust of the eyes? It's by giving away our money giving away our possessions. It's by deciding we don't need as much stuff as we currently have, and we're gonna give it away. And then here's the final um, one that it's gonna talk about for the world, the final aspect of the world, the pride of life. Here's what the pride of life is. The pride of life is enslavement to recognition and praise. It's enslavement to recognition and praise. And for all of us, we know someone who is completely enslaved to their fame, to their clout, to their followers, to how many people know them and love them. And we look at those people and they are so easy to judge, right? It is so easy to judge someone who just seems obsessed with their own image and their own fame and their own popularity. But can I submit to you that there's actually another type of person who is obsessed with recognition and praise? And that's the person who's constantly talking about how insecure they are and how much they're not worth anything and no one really likes them and no one really cares about them. Do you notice the person who always seems to be so down on themselves is still talking about themselves constantly? Like the way we know someone is after recognition and praise is the conversation always seems to go back 
to them. And I want you to look for that inside of your own heart as well. When you talk to people, when you interact with people, when you go through life, do you connect every moment to yourself? Do you make everything about you? Are you constantly thinking that everyone in the room is thinking about you and what you wore today and how your hair looks today and whether you showed up late or not? Are you constantly thinking about you? Are you constantly looking for that recognition or praise? That's what the pride of life is. The pride of life is this orienting of the world entirely around the center of you. And here's what freedom from the pride of life, that enslavement where I'm constantly thinking about me and what people think about me is. Freedom from the pride of life comes through self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. I, I love this word. Um, there's an amazing book by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, but C.S. Lewis has a quote where he says it this way. He says, do not imagine that if you met a really humble man, what he, what most pe- he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will, be not, he will not be that sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is really nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. And then here's the key line. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. You know how you break free of the pride of life? This cultural system of our world that wants you to think you're the main character of the story and everywhere you go, everyone's thinking about you constantly. The way you do it is through self-forgetfulness. You talk to people and they walk away going, that person wasn't thinking they were humble. They just weren't thinking about themselves at all. And this is so practical. Like in a few minutes here, we'll sing a few songs, we'll get up, you'll leave church tonight and you'll get in little circles of people and you'll talk. And in that moment, here's the option. Will you be thinking about how you look and how you come off and what people think about you and how you're dressed and how you feel today about your body and how you feel about everything? Are you gonna be obsessed with you? Or in these little tiny conversations that'll happen after church tonight, are you just gonna look someone in the eyes and ask them questions and care about their life and ask follow-up questions and be curious and be genuinely interested in the other image bearer of God who's standing in front of you? That's what freedom looks like when you're just not thinking about you anymore. Can I tell you the most confident people you know aren't confident because they're so amazing in and of themselves? They're confident because they look confident because they're not thinking about themselves. They walk into a room, they're not worried what everyone thinks because they know everyone's thinking about themselves anyway. They walk into a room, they just know like, I'm here to serve, I'm here to love, I'm here to be the type of person who's not interested in me. Again, here's how the world operates. Lust of the flesh, give into everything your body wants. Lust of the eyes, get everything your eyes see. Pride of like, may everything about you. And here's what it says in verse 17. It says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God, they last forever. <laughs> you know, this verse gets me thinking about like the world, the systems, the way this world operates. One day it's going to go away. Like one day it's not going to be a really big deal to you. And this intoxicating thing of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and the way the world operates, it's going to go away someday. It's a little like this. Does anyone here in this room remember middle school? Do you remember those glory days? Maybe you had an amazing experience in middle school. Most of us didn't, right? Like, like middle school is this weird time where we're suddenly like put into this popularity matrix and hierarchy and we're trying to figure out our way, what we're supposed to wear and how we're supposed to talk and how we're supposed to be. And so middle school is this constant stress when you walk around, you're like, everyone's thinking about me constantly and I don't know what to do, right? Middle school, you remember those days. But can I tell you what all of us do with middle school? We look back on middle school and go, we were so ridiculous, right? 
like to think about what we cared about, what we talked about, what was important to us. We look back at middle school and we smirk and we scoff and we go, those were just such silly days. You know what? That's exactly what this is saying. The world and its desires are passing away. But the person who does the will of God lasts forever. Do you know there will come a day a hundred million years from now where you are ruling and reigning with Christ forever and you will look back on the silly things of this world and go, those things passed away. They were just a mist here for a moment and gone. All of the pressures you feel from your family, all of the pressures you feel at school, on your campus, in your workplace, all of the pressures you fear from the culture and the world right now, one day those will seem silly and small in light of who God is as you live forever. And what does that allow us to do? Just to walk with confidence now. To go, yeah, all these pressures and all these people who want us to conform to the patterns of this world, we're not gonna do it. Because we ultimately know who we've been called to be like. And child of God, you have not been called to be like this world. You have been called to be like the one who conquered the world. And that is Jesus Christ, the resurrected King of the universe, the King of your heart, the Savior of your soul, and the one who invites you to conform to His image. That's what you're called to. So tonight, Here's how I practically want to invite you um, to respond to this call. Our band's gonna make their way up right now. And um, I just wanna give you a real simple, practical way um, for you to perhaps identify um, some ways that you have been conforming to the patterns and the practices and the things of this world. And, And let me just lay this out before you ahead of time. I think it's everyone. Like, I don't think you get to be like, nope, there's no place in my life I've conformed to the patterns of this world. If that was the case, Romans 12 wouldn't have to tell you to start not conforming to the patterns of this world, but rather being transformed by the renewing of your mind. The assumption in the New Testament is there's always these places in our life where we've just slipped into the lust of the flesh. We've given into our body and what it wants. We've given into the lust of our eyes. We've actually become greedy. And maybe some of us are realizing, like, I don't give away money. All my money goes to my consumption or the pride of life. Like maybe some of you are recognizing tonight, listen, I have just given into this idea that everything's about me. I constantly think about me. I'm constantly obsessed with how people see me. And tonight, I want to give you a word, a word that will give you freedom, but it's going to cost you something. I want you to understand that the cost of freedom is repentance. It's repentance. Repentance is you moving in one direction. Everything's going this way. Everything seems to be going this way, but to repent isn't just to feel bad. It is to plant your foot in the ground, to turn and to go the other direction. It's like this. When I was in college, I studied in London and in London, they have this great underground subway system they call the tube. And some of the tube lines like run in a little circle around the center of London, but some of them like jet out to random places just outside the city. And I remember from time to time I was new in the city. And so what would happen is I would get on the wrong tube line and it didn't take me in a little circle. What would happen is it would take me to some random place and it wasn't leading me toward like where I wanted to go. It was leading toward a dead end in the middle of nowhere. And so what I had to do was not just sit there and hope things would work out. At some point I had to stop, get off the tube and go in the other direction. And here's what I know for some of you, whether it's the lust of your flesh and just the impulses of your body you've been giving into, the lust of your eyes, this desire for wealth and status and comfort and luxury, or the pride of life, this constant obsession you have with you, it is taking you down a railroad track to nowhere. And tonight, what I wanna call you to do is to turn, to get off that train, to repent and go in a different direction to cry out to God and say, I'm done with this. I'm done giving into the ways of the world. I'm done operating this way. It's slavery and God, I want you to set me free. And so God, I come to you tonight. I repent of my sin and I run back to Jesus whose arms are open wide for you. 
Child of God, can I tell you, I don't know what you've gotten into. I don't know what's been going into your heart. I don't know what's been going on in the last year, year and a half. I just know there's a savior whose arms are open wide, who says, welcome home. So here's what we're gonna do tonight. Um, like I said, back by that um, prayer wall, uh, over the next two songs, there's these little cards. And it kind of mentions these different things. You can fill one of these out. You're not putting your name on this. This isn't for us to like track you down and be like, tell us more. Like, that's not what this is. This is just a moment between you and God to say, you know what? I've been going down this dead end road that leads nowhere and I need to stop, get off this train and get back on the train that leads me back to you. If that's you tonight, I want you to boldly, as these next two songs go, walk straight up to this wall, confess and repent before God and watch what happens. Watch what happens when God sets you free. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to consider the world that you have created the world that you have loved, and at the same time, the world that sets itself up against you. God, I pray tonight this room would be filled with repentance. God, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's the fact that Jesus' arms are open wide that leads us to repentance. And so God, I pray for anyone whose spirit has just been pricked tonight. They sense your Holy Spirit tugging on their heart. God, I pray that they would repent, that they would turn tonight, and that they would trust Jesus and Jesus alone. God, help us come to him tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said real loud, amen.